Hey, if you have your Bible, you can open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one that's uh, in the seat in front of you, and that's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take that and use it, and if uh, that one's not good, you can stop at the Lost and Found and probably find a nice one uh, there that you can just take home. So uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. Just one thing I want to highlight before we um, get into the, the message today is uh, if you are here, this is your church home, or you're new and you're getting plugged in, or this is your first Sunday, one of the ways to stay connected around here is to subscribe to what we call um, uh, New Hope Happenings. And so you can, it's an email, Catherine King uh, on staff, she puts it together every week, she sends it out, and, and it tells you all kinds of things. Uh, helps you stay in touch. Things like what we have Harvest Fest that's coming out, outdoor service along with Harvest Fest that's coming up. You can read all about it. Uh, you can get New Hope Happenings. You can go to the website and read about it. But one of the goals in writing that every week that she puts the time together is to keep you informed of everything going on here uh, at the church. And so we would love to have you at the outdoor service, uh, weather permitting, uh, October the 3rd. And we're going to follow that with a party for the community and the church family together uh, that we do each year called Harvest Fest. That'll be Sunday morning, October the 3rd. Now, today, uh, one of the things that I think would help us as we prepare to study God's word together is to get some clarity around um, a couple things that would help us even here at the church. Some of the language that we use as a church to communicate kind of what we're all about um, revolves around this word uh, that you may be familiar with, but you may have just heard it and you may repeat it. And the word is disciple. And the question I've got is, what is a disciple? What is a disciple of Jesus? We say around here all the time, we want to be disciples who make disciples. We want to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And so what does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, the late uh, and brilliant Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, uh, I think, has one of the, the best definitions. Here's what, how he defines a disciple. He says, a disciple is a learner, a student, an apprentice, a practitioner. Disciples of Jesus are people who do not just profess certain views as their own, so they don't just say what they believe, but they apply their growing understanding of life in the kingdom of the heavens to every aspect of their life on earth. And so a disciple is somebody who understands and continues to grow in their understanding of what it means to live in God's kingdom, submitting your life under the teachings of Jesus, and then they apply that understanding to their life over and over again. Not perfectly, but continually and continuously applying this to their life. I love the word he used in there, the word apprentice. Sat next to somebody at a wedding uh, that I preached recently, and they were an electrician's apprentice. And they said it's going to be a while before they're able to do uh, kind of what their ultimate career goal is, because as an apprentice, you need hundreds of hours sitting under the teaching of someone more experienced. If you wanted to be a woodworker, somebody who could build furniture, you know, and, and do the whole Joanna Gaines thing, right? You want to build the furniture and make it look awesome. You'd find a carpenter and you would go to them and you would say, I want to apprentice under you. I want to learn from you. You know what they would not say to you? They would not say, oh, you want to learn how to build things with wood and use tools. Let's meet at Starbucks and I'll buy you a PSL and we'll sit down and I'll teach you all about carpentry. I did say PSL. Yeah, mark that down. All right. And I'll teach you all about how to be a carpenter. They wouldn't say that. Instead, if you were going to be their apprentice, what would they say? They would say, come to my shop. Come to my shop. Do what I do. 
Let me teach you how to use this tool. Let me teach you what this kind of wood can be used for. Let me teach you how to build this and connect these and do this. And they're going to teach you. And you're going to fail over and over again. And they're going to stand right there next to you. And they're going to help you continue to learn. And before you know it, you're going to develop the skills. Well, according to Willard, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Somebody who sits under the teaching of Jesus as an apprentice and continually applies what he has taught through his word to their life over and over again, imperfectly, absolutely, falling flat on their face, sure, but picking themselves up and continuing with the family of God to continue to walk closely with Jesus. I think this is really important for us to understand today as we dive into a really important core practice. So let me set us up this way. Many of you will remember back in, not everyone here, but many of you will remember back in April of 1994, in a period of just 100 days, when 800,000 people were slaughtered in Rwanda. It kind of baffles us when we think about it, right? Right, this, this battle that took place between the, the Hutu people and the Tutsi people when then the then president and his counterpart were shot down in their airplane and on, on the 6th of April and beginning that night, an onslaught of innocent people, hundreds of thousands of innocent people, murdered, slaughtered, killed. One of the most gruesome periods in history. Kind of baffled everybody when it took place. 20 years after this took place, the New York Times did a post. You can Google this and find it. It's pretty fascinating where they, they wanted to uh, highlight the art of a photographer named Peter Hugo. Hugo had heard that in Uganda at the time, in Rwanda at the time, they were forgiving many of the people that had been victims in this slaughter, in this like losing loved ones and just being criminalized and having their property damaged and all of these horrible things that took place in their life were offering profound forgiveness that was then honored by the government in the form of a pardon for sentencing. And it kind of blew him away. So he wanted to go and highlight it. So he went and he photog uh, took photography, pictures of these people that had now reconciled under extreme circumstances, really atro atrocities. And yet they'd found the ability to forgive and to reconcile these relationships. It was pretty phenomenal. Look at, here's one of the pictures. Let me read you some of the testimonies here. One of the testimonies says this. My conscience was not quiet when I would see here. This is from the man in this picture that you're seeing. When I would see here, I was so ashamed of what I had done. After being trained about forgiveness and reconciliation, I went to her house and I pleaded for forgiveness. She shook my hand. And now we're on good terms. This is from the female in the picture that you see. He killed my father and my three brothers. He did this with a group of other people, but he alone came and asked me for forgiveness. He and another group of offenders who had been in prison helped me build a home with a covered roof. I was terrified of him. And when I forgave him, when I offered him forgiveness, things began to get normal, and I could feel my mind clearing. Another testimony says this, I, I burned her house. I attacked her in order to kill her children, but God protected them and they escaped. When I was released from jail, if I saw her, I would run and hide. And then I started to learn about these trainings for forgiveness and reconciliation. And I decided to ask her for forgiveness, to have a good relationship with the person to whom you have done such evil deeds. I thank God. From the female who was offended by this, this attacker, I used to hate him. When he came to my house and he knelt down before me and asked me for forgiveness, I was so moved by his sincerity. Now when I have trouble and need help, I call him. 
Sometimes justice does not give someone a satisfactory answer. This is a testimony. Cases are subject to corruption. But when it comes to forgiveness, willingly granted, one is satisfied once and for all. When someone is full of anger, they can lose their mind. But when I offered forgiveness, I felt the Lord bless my mind at rest. It's phenomenal. One of the core practices of those who apprentice or disciple under Jesus is to offer forgiveness, is to be a forgiving people. And when you hear that, you think to yourself, yeah, like, of course, I forgive. But then you hear stories like this and you think, I don't know that I could forgive that. And while many of us are never going to be called to make uh, an offering of forgiveness for atrocities like what took place in Rwanda, your pain is still your pain. Many of you have been hurt by the decisions, the actions, the communication of other people. And that pain is sufficient. That pain is real. You don't need to push it aside and say, well, it wasn't that bad. Well, it was still your pain. And you still struggle with that pain. And many of us, we wrestle with the idea of, will I ever get over this pain? I'd sure like to be someone who can forgive. I don't know how I'm going to forgive that. And we wrestle and we struggle with the idea of reconciliation. Are you kidding me? I can't even fathom the idea of trusting this person again after what they've done to me. And if we're honest, maybe it's just me. We even struggle with the idea of like, I don't know that I trust the Lord to have justice the way that I'd like justice to be served in this situation. God is so forgiving and I just want justice. See, the church in Corinth began to wrestle a little bit with this too. And the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 really drops some incredible information, some knowledge about what it means to mature in your apprenticeship to Jesus, to spend time with him. You journey with him and he begins to teach you and stretch you and challenge you and guide you to become more like him as you are a disciple of his. One of the harder areas of discipleship, of apprenticeship to Jesus, is this idea of becoming a forgiving person when it's your turn to practice forgiveness. And Paul knew that. So we're going to pick up. It's going to get a little weird at first, uh, and then it'll get a little more clear, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So we have this situation here. As far as we can tell, when you study this passage, this is an individual who has sinned, who has, he has hurt people with his decision-making. Some older commentators will tell you that the, there's a good chance, and they make a really good case for this, I think you can make a strong case for this, that the individual in 2 Corinthians 2 is the same individual for, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, that's a little while ago in our teaching series, so let me fill you in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul calls out some sin that was taking place in the Corinthian church. Mainly, there was an individual who was caught up in sexual morality. He was having sex with his stepmom, and the sin was tolerating it, or the church was tolerating that sin. And Paul says, how could you tolerate this? This individual needs to be put out from the gathering. And the, and the whole goal there was that he would come to his senses and repent. You can make a case for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, along with chapter 2, gives an indication that there's a case to be made that this might have been a different situation. The Apostle Paul uses very personal information to talk about the pain that was caused by this individual in the passage we just read. Somehow this person had deeply offended Paul, and as a result, and Paul being so deeply offended, the church was also offended by this individual. 
You could also make a case that it's the same person. Paul called him out on his sin. He didn't like it. He, uh, he somehow uh, hurt Paul in his non-repentant state. Paul got offended. Everyone got offended. It could be the same person. Here, here's the point. Either way, Paul personally was deeply offended by something that took place. And he says, I've been grieved by this person. And you as a church family have been grieved by their sin. And he calls them to exercise what we would call church discipline. Now, you might be thinking, church discipline? That sounds archaic. (laughs) Why would a church discipline people? Like, that just doesn't sound like something that the church should do. And so let me fill us in. I'm just going to talk a couple things about what church discipline is so we can understand what was taking place here. I'm going to start by explaining what church discipline is not, okay? So church discipline is not, it's not about power or control. It's important to keep that in mind, and it's hard to do that. The issues taking place here are not small issues. You might be thinking, the church discipline, so like, oh, I better not let them know anything in my life because I I messed up here and I made a mistake. It's not what he's talking about. Not talking about, hey, I I slipped up and and made this mistake. I did this thing, and I'm sorry about it, but I don't want to be in church discipline. That's not what it is. These are really grievous things that took place in the church that are non-repentant. This person is not repenting. They refuse to repent. They refuse to acknowledge their sin. And as a result, the church has to exercise discipline. It's not about power and control because every time you read about church discipline in your New Testament, it has, it's more focused on the person being disciplined than the ones doing the discipline. Because the goal of church discipline is to wake somebody up, is to bring them to their senses so that they might repent and be reconciled to the church family. That's the goal. And so discipline without reconciliation in mind is not biblical. Discipline must have reconciliation in mind. And so somebody comes and says, hey, as far as we can tell, but what we're looking at in your life, it doesn't look like you are living for Jesus. A good tree bears good fruit. And you're not looking, you're struggling in this sin and you're not repentant. And so we have to do something. Why? Because the church is called to reflect the holiness of God and God tolerates no sin. And so in a loving way, the church comes and exercises church discipline. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is while it's not about power and control, it's also not easy, and it's very uncomfortable, and it should be. And as a matter of fact, if anybody is, like, not uncomfortable and finds it easy to exercise church discipline, you're probably not the person to lead it. You're like, I want to you know, serve the church. I want to lead the church discipline committee. I think I'd be so good at that. Like, just, yeah, let me lead it. Like, ah, you're probably not the one we want dealing with people, Right? That's what, what's going on here. We know that. Why? Because look at, look at how Paul talks through and explains the feelings that were behind the need to discipline this person. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. There's one word. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote to you out of great distress. I was distressed by the sin that was damaging the church. Anguish of heart. My heart was so heavy with the ripple effect of the sin that was taking place in your lives and with many tears, many tears, Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Meaning everything that he said to them about disciplining this individual whose sin was hurting the church had to do with his deep love for that individual, for this church family. I want what's best for you. Paul couldn't sleep at night when sin was hurting the church. Paul grieved. Paul wept. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you wept over the sin that was damaging someone else's life? 
That's where Paul was coming from. He wasn't eager, I'll tell you right and wrong, I'm the one who knows. And you, like, he was, no, it's like, I can't believe you can't see the damage that this sin is doing to your life. And he grieved it. Like a church that doesn't discipline is a church that doesn't love. Would you be a good parent if you never disciplined your children? No. You also wouldn't be a good parent if you got a lot of excitement out of disciplining your children. We discipline them because we can see what they can't see. We can discipline them. Why? Because if they don't learn to get that under control, it's going to damage their life so much more, and so we've got to stop it. And when the church enters into a place of discipline, this is why the church does that. People who are defiantly, unrepentantly continuing in their sin, they compromise the church's ability to faithfully witness for Jesus. Because to tolerate sin is not to be godly. It's not to pursue holiness. And a maturity is needed to navigate through this. A maturity is needed in the midst of church discipline to then remember that, oh yeah, we also need to forgive. Oh yeah, like even though you're in church discipline, the goal is repentance and restoration. And the church at Corinth, it kind of slipped up in this. And so Paul continues in his writing here, verse seven. Now, instead of continuing to discipline them, that discipline was sufficient. He says, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The goal is not to overwhelm somebody with their sorrow. It is to lead them to repentance. Don't let him be overwhelmed with his sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Would you be an apprentice of Jesus? And when forgiveness was hard and you, you weren't sure, they were repentant, but you weren't sure you wanted to do it, would you be obedient and offer this forgiveness? Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are unaware of his schemes. Look at how gentle Paul is here. He's very, very kind in this seeking of forgiveness. He's not a bully. He's not macho. He's not, what he, he never says anyone's name. He doesn't put this person's name in writing. He doesn't spill all the details about what offended him. This is why we have to guess as to even what was going on because he doesn't give us all the details that normally we'd want that gossip. But Paul, why? Because for Paul, he'd forgiven. Look, I was grieved. It hurt. And I moved on. And you need to as well. What he's telling them is like, enough. Corinthians, enough. I'm proud of you. You did good. You, you weeded out the sin and you dealt with the sin issue, but call off the dogs. Like enough is enough. It's time for you to forgive this person. Look, what he's saying here is this, is that you don't want someone who's been forgiven by God to be treated as though they're unforgiven by God's people. You don't want somebody who has sought and accepted forgiveness from God to be treated by God's people as though they're still unforgiven. We should never be slower to forgive than God. And we should never forget that there is always more grace in God than there is sin in man. We should always remember these things. So you have someone here, they're saying, I'm sorry, I've messed my whole life up, I can see it now, you've got my attention, and you've got a church, and, and maybe in our culture today as well, you have a church, sitting back and saying, well, how sorry are you though? Like, are you really sorry? I don't know. I don't know if you're really sorry. I don't know if you feel this enough the way we think you need to feel it. And Paul is saying, enough is enough. That's not what Jesus would do. You're an apprentice of Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when they come, 
and they're repentant, we say, come to us as a church, weary, heavy laden, and we will be a place of rest. If we are learning from our master, from our teacher, Jesus, and we should not approach forgiveness any other way than the way that he did. So it's important. Let's clarify a little bit about what forgiveness is. What does it mean then as a disciple of Jesus to be someone who practices forgiveness regularly in my life, welcomes it into the everyday stuff of my life where I'm constantly aware of the need for it and I'm willing to offer it? What does it look like? And so let me define forgiveness a couple different ways. We're going to start with defining what forgiveness is not, okay? Biblical forgiveness is not feeling therapeutic. It's not a therapeutic feeling. For Christians, forgiveness is far more than just a feeling. It can't simply be driven by my feelings. We don't forgive when we feel just because it's right. Why? Because when you do that, you're going to wait until justice is served the way that you want justice to be served. You offering forgiveness purely dependent upon how you feel is a display of your lack of trust in the justice of God. Now, there are feelings involved, and feelings can play a factor. They're not the driving factor. And when we understand that, the way we offer forgiveness begins to stand out in a culture whose cultural narrative is telling us to do exactly the opposite. Your feelings are important. So hear me when you say, like, I'm checked out, dude, no way. Therapeutic feeling, when we have to feel good and right and everything's perfect so I can forgive somebody, it diminishes the need for reconciliation in the relationship because that person just has to do whatever you need them to do. Now, that said, now that I've got you on my bad side, like, I'm on your bad side. Number two, forgiveness is not about ignoring your pain. It's not just a feeling, but it's not about ignoring your pain either. It doesn't mean that you all of a sudden start to feel good about the bad that's been done to you. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to just say, hey, you turn that frown upside down. Like, I know you're upset, but you should just feel good about it. Like, go take yourself to the furniture store, and you Christians, you're in the doormat section. So when everybody messes with you, ignore your pain and just forgive. Ignore your pain and just nowhere. That's, that's ridiculous. We are not called to ignore our pain. We can feel pain. And honestly, complete restoration of a relationship might not be possible, and we can still extend forgiveness. We can still forgive somebody and say, but this still hurts. I can forgive you because I trust in the justice of God, but I am still hurting, and I don't know that a complete restoration of this relationship is going to be possible. I mean, I want it to be. I really do, and I'll work toward that. I don't know. I know I can forgive you, but I know I'm still hurting. This is why Paul says, in as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. Third thing, forgiveness does not negate consequences. It does not negate consequences. It doesn't take consequences away. Think about David with Bathsheba, the sin. He repented of it. God forgives him, and yet his family and his legacy are forever damaged because of his poor choices. Think about the thief on the cross dying next to Jesus. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And he still died on that cross. That thief still died. Consequences. Consequences are not erased simply because we've been extended forgiveness. Chris Braun said it this way, forgiveness is a commitment by the offended. It is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability. So I've, I've, you have no moral liability to me anymore. I've forgiven you. And I'll work toward reconciling with you as a person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. You may have to say, man, I forgive you, but I don't know that I trust you yet. I don't know that I'm able to trust yet. I can forgive you because you have no liability to me anymore. 
released that. But I don't know that I can trust you. So what is forgiveness then? If that's what it's not, what is it? Two quick things, okay? First is this. Forgiveness is unconditional and conditional. It's unconditional and conditional. What I mean by that is this. We as Christians are called to always unconditionally be willing to offer forgiveness to somebody who seeks it from us. Why? Because we continually go to our Heavenly Father who continually offers us His forgiveness. And as we experience that continual, unconditional, if we're in Christ and repentant forgiveness, when someone seeks it from us, we are to unconditionally be willing to offer it. The condition is, in certain circumstances, it needs to be sought. There needs to be repentance. Can't forgive something that someone's not repenting of. And there are situations where I have to wait. I can release it. That's why forgiveness as a Christian is far more than just a feeling. I've released it. I no longer. That's awesome. That's good. But you haven't forgiven them. Forgiveness is a conscious decision based upon repentance. I, you repent, I forgive you, and I'm unconditionally willing to do that because I've unconditionally experienced it from my Heavenly Father. The second thing, and this one's key, this one is where I've wrestled in my life, is this. Forgiveness is trusting in the justice of God. And what I mean by that is this. When I have wronged somebody, right, or I have been wronged as an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, sitting under the teaching of Jesus, someone has wronged me, I can release my need for justice. And don't lie, you felt that need for justice. Like, oh, this is how we're playing? Let's do this. And I'm, I'm going to seek justice. And until justice is achieved, there is no reconciliation. As a Christian, we release the need for justice because we trust that God's going to handle it in one of two ways, on the cross or in eternity. Meaning, this person who's wronged me will repent. And because of the blood of Jesus on the cross, they will be forgiven of that. Because Jesus overcame that, they'll seek forgiveness and they will get forgiveness in this life. And many of us don't like that. But, but what about, but how? All it takes is an internal look. But what about my sin? What about my continual messing up? What about me defaming the name of Christ with my sin struggles? And I come and he continually offers it to me in this life. And I'm called to release justice, to allow it to be served if it's at the cross. And if not, it's in eternity in hell. Either way, whether that person achieves the justice of God paid for on the cross or paid for in eternity, I no longer need to carry the weight of justice in this situation. I can release it. Easier said than done, right? This is what Paul's calling them to do. Enough's enough. All right, justice, God has achieved it. There's repentance. We forgive and we move forward. Easier said than done. C.S. Lewis famously said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a good idea until it's their turn to practice it. That's so true. Forgiveness is an awesome idea. This sounds so good until it's your turn. Then what? It's time to step up. You're an apprentice too. And he's stretching you in this area. He's, you're a disciple of Jesus being stretched and challenged in this area. Will you step into it and allow him to give you what you need so you can offer forgiveness? It's hard. I'm no expert here either. I've wrestled through this. This has been really challenging for me. If you don't know my story, um, you're going to hear a little bit of it now. If you're coming to Starting Point today, you'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But when I was a, a young boy, uh, my father was shot and killed in an armed robbery. He was killed by a 17-year-old kid who was strung out on drugs. That's really, really hard, as you can imagine. And the spiral effect of that 
My mom couldn't handle the grief losing her husband. He went to work one day and he was gone. And she couldn't handle it. And so she started making really, really poor choices. And so the man that killed my dad, for a lot of reasons, for me and my younger brother, we've struggled with the idea that he also took our mom away from us and ruined our childhood. Ruined it. It's really hard. We fast forward. I become a Christian as a senior in high school, go off to Bible college, seminary, get married. I'm a preacher here. My brother's two years younger than me. He's an incredible uncle to my children. And he comes up to visit and he's hanging out with us. And uh, we get in the car and I'll never forget this. We get in the car and he doesn't open up a lot. And so when he does, it's like, I don't care what's going on. He gets my full attention. We're driving. And he says, hey, I got a question. Now at the time, this is 2019, 2000. Yeah, it was before uh, our friend COVID came. And uh, it was before that. And so we're, we're riding in the car. And at the time, uh, the man who killed my dad was going to be up for parole. And I was the next of kin. And so my, my responsibility was to speak on behalf of our family because my mom had died. Uh, she died right before our wedding. And that left me as the oldest to speak into this. My brother knew that. And so we're riding alone in the car and he looks to me and he says, hey, I know you're a preacher. I know you're a pastor and a Christian. And he said, do you forgive? You forgive the guy that killed dad? Because I don't. Whew. In the moment, I thought, man, I have to be, I have to navigate this well because how, how I answer this, because there's days, right? Like it comes in waves, it's hard. And I told him, I said, hey, man, I, when I think about what God did to forgive me and all my struggles, man, it's hard for me to say no to that. I said, yeah, I think I have forgiven him, but I walked him through some of what we said today and I said, you know what, I, it still hurts. It does. I think I've forgiven him. I'd love for him to become a Christian. I said, but it doesn't erase the consequences, and I don't think he should be released from jail. But, you know, we, we talked through it and wrestled through it. And by no means do I want you to think, man, look at Superman up there. No, I have days. It's hard. Like, this is really a hard thing, and it comes and it goes, and you're like, man, I want to be more like Jesus, and today that's a little bit harder. But I know he's called me to extend forgiveness. And look at how Paul describes it. When we wrestle like that, when we're willing to do that, look at how he describes what our life does when we become the type of people to extend forgiveness. Look at how he describes it, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us, get this, if you, if you like to underline and make, to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are God, to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those being, who are perishing. Meaning, those who are being saved, the aroma of our life as we continue to apprentice under Jesus, that aroma that comes off of us is an encouragement to those who are also in Christ, but it also creates this holy curiosity because it reveals to those who are not in Christ what their future might hold if they don't learn this, if they don't come to know Jesus. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those who are sent from God. As we continue to practice the ways of Jesus and live that out in our lives, what we learn is that God uses that as an aroma. Our life can become like that as we continue to apprentice under him. But look, it involves that we do something. Forgiveness will stretch you. Everyone thinks it's a good idea until it's their turn to step up. 
And you're going to be challenged by this. Why? Because we don't, he closes out that section. He says, we don't know what Satan's schemes are, but we do know he's scheming. And you know, the one thing Satan wants you not to become is a person who offers forgiveness because you've received that same forgiveness from Christ. Satan wants nothing more than for us to be an unforgiving people. It's what he would like. And so what do you do? What do we do? You ever been to a ball game for your favorite team or watched it at home? And it's a close game, right? And you're watching this game and it gets down to the fourth quarter or it gets down to, you know, the the bottom of the ninth inning, whatever it is, and your team is losing. But then on that last play, right to end the game, your team wins, right? Right? Like you guys watched the GOAT Tom Brady do that this past week. I'm kidding. Stay with me. Stay with me. Okay? But you you watch how that took place. And, And what happens when your team wins the game? What do you do? Yeah, you go crazy and you scream, yeah. And then what do you say? We did it. We won. You didn't do anything. (laughs) You didn't win anything, right? There's a group of players that did. You didn't win anything. I think in the church we do that a lot too. Yeah, forgiveness. Yes, be a forgiving people. What are you doing? You can cheer on everybody else, but what, what are you doing? So I want to close out. I want you to wrestle with this. I do. I want us to practice this. I don't want us to learn by staring at a stage. I want us to learn by apprenticing under Jesus, to be his disciple. And as you do that, as you continue to work this out, I'm going to give you two questions this week to wrestle with in your own life as you process this and think through, what does the Lord want from me? First question is this. As a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus, what does it look like for you to offer forgiveness and pursue reconciliation? from someone who's hurt you for a pain that you've held on to. You don't have to do it perfectly in a week, but maybe take that next step. Man, I, I need to trust the Lord with this. How do I do that? And you begin to really process it. You begin to pray about it. You begin to talk to people in your discipleship group, or you begin to talk to people here at the church and your church family. You begin to say, I don't know what this looks like, and this is going to be hard, but I need to take that next step because I can't carry this anymore. Second question, and this is a heartfelt one. Do you trust, do you really trust that the justice of God on the cross or in eternity in hell is sufficient for the pain that you're carrying? I mean, is it? Is that sufficient, the justice of God, sufficient for you to step back and say, I don't need, I don't need this. I don't need to seek justice anymore because he will handle it by his grace on the cross or in eternity. I'm going to pray over you as you wrestle with this this week. I'm going to pray for us to be the type of people, right, who offer forgiveness and get excited when a repentant sinner comes home, right? We would be that aroma, like in Luke 15, when the the prodigal son comes home and they say, man, let's kill the fattened calf. The prodigal is home. Let us be a type of people that likes the aroma of bacon and not blood. Let's celebrate when a repentant sinner comes home and let's do our part and being a people of forgiveness as we disciple underneath Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had today to be challenged by your word, that it's you that speaks to us from the words of Scripture, and your Holy Spirit that is alive in those of us who are in Christ, who continually convicts and leads us. And we need that now, Father. We need you because we can't be a people of forgiveness apart from your power in us. And we can't achieve this 
without fixing our eyes on Jesus, who gave everything in order to forgive us and has called us, those who are weary and heavy laden, to come to him so that we can find rest for our souls. We ask you for this blessing in his name. And all God's people said,